Welcome to the Maker's Playbook, the podcast where we talk all about what it's really like to make a living from the things you make. I'm your host, Rebecca Ikes-Kara. Well, hello there. It's week four. And for those of you following along at home, you might be wondering, wait a second, don't you always skip the fourth week of the podcast and send out a monthly photography tips email? Are we still getting that email? Well, first things first, if you are following along that closely at home, please email me directly so I can send you a serious outpouring of thanks for paying that close of attention. The perfectionist side of me is going to try to not focus on your attention to detail and not stress over it. (laughs) But for everybody else, indeed, it's true. Normally, this little podcast is published three out of every four weeks. And on that fourth week, I send out my top tips on photography for ceramicists and other makers. So why is this unexpected new episode happening right now? Well, my friends, because I have something really big in store for the coming weeks of the podcast. I'm pausing for dramatic effect right now because it's so big. There is not going to be any new episodes published for the next two weeks because during that time, I am preparing an entire month worth of podcast episodes and special emails and maybe, maybe even some Instagram lives. I don't know yet. I'm on the fence about that one. So I need your feedback. Send me an email. Send me a DM. Let me know how you feel about Instagram lives. Um, all of this content, podcast emails, maybe Instagram lives, solely on the topic of photography. We're going to talk about glossy glazes. We're going to talk about how to deal with how absolutely frustrating it is to try and photograph your work on all white backgrounds. We're going to talk about what actually makes a photo good or bad. And a heck of a lot more for an entire month here on the podcast. So if you aren't already on the email insiders list, then hit pause right now and click on the link in the show notes to not only get on that list, but also immediately download my free cheat sheet for at-home photography to kickstart all of your photography learning. So with all of that said, what guest could I possibly leave you with and not have a podcast episode for another two weeks? Well, my friends, this week on the podcast, we have none other than Ryan Durbin of RD Ceramics. You probably already recognize that name from Instagram if you're one of his 30,000 followers. But you might also recognize Ryan from the most perfectly named Potters podcast out there, Wheel Talk with Ryan and Becca. It's just this week, it's a different Becca. (laughs) All right, we dig into a variety of subjects on this episode, but I'm not going to lie, my absolute favorite reminder for all of us, myself included, comes right at the end when Ryan intertwines my favorite sport and his with the necessity of staying focused on the long term. In other words, are you making decisions because of trends or fads or quick solutions or social media pressure? Or are you in this to succeed for the long game? Seriously, be sure you listen all the way through. It is so good and I'm most definitely not doing it justice trying to sum it up right now. So let's just get to it. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rebecca, nice to see you. Nice to meet you. 
Officially, how's it feel to be on the other side of this microphone? Yeah, it's a little weird. I was coming into this. You you sent me the like email with some things to spark some thoughts so that I'm not just in the moment thinking of things off the top yeah. of my head. But I was kind of like, uh, maybe I should look at this for 30 <laughs> minutes before we meet. Maybe I should look at these and jot some notes down and be prepared a little bit. But hey, it's yeah, it's a little different being on the other side, but. It's all yeah, about we'll being see, candid. See no. Yeah, I would rather just do it off the cuff anyways. I don't stress about like talking with a podcaster, like doing IG lives or anything like that. That's like spur of the moment, see what happens. And All right, we're going to have to talk about IG lives on this conversation then because <laughs> I have yet to dip my toes into... Or just stories in general too. I can handle stories. I can, okay, before we get into that, <laughs> for people who don't know who this mysterious Ryan is on the other side of the microphone, how would you introduce yourself? Ryan Durbin from RD Ceramics, located in Southgate, Kentucky, which is how I lead every episode of my podcast. I co-host Wheel, the Wheel Talk podcast with Rebecca Otis from Five Lines Pottery. You only do podcasts with Rebecca's? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Becca's and Rebecca's, and we've interviewed Rebecca's, so no shortage of Rebecca's to go around. <laughs> and we've been doing that for about a year and a half. I am a full-time website developer, nine to five kind of thing, and then I do the pottery on the side. My nights usually six p.m. to midnight, most weeknights, and selling on the side. I've pretty much been making since high school. A lot of people's stories like that with clay. And I've been started in high school in 2007, and then I've been selling since 2016. So this is like my fifth year of selling for those that are wondering how that process has progressed. So I'm not going to sit on the idea that you were in high school in 2007. We're going to move on from that. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because it's only like a a five year ish swing, but for some reason that feels like exponentially different. If it helps, I just had a birthday two days ago. Yeah. Yeah, sure. If that helps at all. (laughs) (laughs) You're aging at the same speed as all the rest of us. (laughs) That's awesome. Also, I have to admit just to you and publicly, you guys scored the primary option for a name of a podcast for Ceramicus. I don't know which one of you came up with that. So you're saying we're like top of the line with our naming? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh man, we, it's funny. She, so Becca and I were going through names and I'm a habitual like note taker and stuff. So we just had a shared iPhone note and just wrote down a list of names of different things that we thought of. Then the list was probably 30 things long. And it's funny. I think we talked about it in a past episode, but yeah, wheel talk was up there. It was like a take on the other ones. Yeah. Real talk and then wheel talk. So it was like wheel is related to ceramics because we're both wheel throwers and then talk because we try to keep it pretty candid and open. Like we're not editing a lot, which I talked about you before. Oh man, I'm trying to remember. It's funny because Becca, she's, I want to say screen printed, but she printed a shirt for me for my birthday last year or for Christmas or something. And it had our logo. And then on the back, it just had the note version of all the like jotted um, all the other options. jotted notes about what the name of this podcast was going to be and all of the just spewing of information. It even had a little graphic that I drew that was a terrible drawing with like my hand on the iPhone of what our logo would look like. That's awesome. <laughs> so I think it was actually our one year anniversary of doing the podcast is what she sent it for, but all it right. was pretty funny. I need to see this list because I definitely, oh, when gosh. I was sitting around like ideating, 
I just kept getting stuck on the fact that you had already claimed wheel talk and was like, oh gosh, what else yes. could I possibly do? Because that's clearly the only option. Yeah. Your interviews though, are not necessarily all with clay artists, are they? No, we've had a couple. We've, we're going on two now. I have some other ones hopefully in the running because my background was first in photography and now ceramics is that side hustle like so many of all of us. So I wanted to be focused, like it's heavy on the ceramics, but it's not completely because I also feel like there's so much like the photographers I know who have the strongest businesses, frankly, are the ones who don't, aren't so focused in just on photography. Like they're looking out into the world for what else is happening in other spaces of the world to like be able to pull things in and think up creative right. ideas. Yeah. I actually found the note with the yes. names. Do you want me to give you a couple? Yes. You? Okay. Maker's Cast. Oh, Hot Life. Maker's Cast is like the reverse. So it's basically like the, I went the Maker's. Okay, keep going. Right. Maker's Playbook. The Craft Table. I like that one. Yeah. Craft Sessions. Craft Fashions. Like Confessions. Craft Fashions. I don't know. That's good. <laughs> Man. Maker's Chatter. That was interesting. Because that's a play on ceramics yeah. also. Like Chatterheads. That was. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're getting let's, deeper into the let's ceramics. Let's get wheel. Jargon. Let's, Let's get wheel. Getting wheel with Ryan and Becca. Wheel banter. The wheel life. Yeah. Oh, oh, all right. There were some good ones. Yeah, it was interesting. There weren't 30 on here, but there was about 20 and it was fun. And wheel talk is on here and it's funny to imagine what any of these other ones for 90 episodes would look like. But <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I like wheel talk. You chose correctly according to me, which means very little. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shoot. That's awesome. Okay, so you said your full-time software, web design, not software design, web yeah, design. Yeah, web developer. Yep. So it all blends together to me. Yeah. Web design, to me, it sounds like a graphic designer that happens to do stuff for the web. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. That's me. That's actually, so my degree is actually in graphic design. It wasn't even ever in photography. So did yeah. you go to school for web? Yeah, I went to college actually about five minutes up the street here near... I'm in Northern Kentucky, which was near downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. Northern Kentucky University is where I went to school. And I got a degree in computer information technology. So IT and then web design was like one of the buckets underneath there. Yep. And I minored in ceramics. Pretty much just because I wanted to do all the, the gas firing and all the different types of firings. and You just wanted to play with fire. Clay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was pretty fun. Did the Raku and the, all the different firing methods there, which oh, was yeah. fun. So you are basically one of the 1% of people in the world who went to school for the job you have now, not to mention also the side hustle you have now. I'm like fascinated yeah. by how clear. I was a very planner heavy. I, I, I don't know where to go with this conversation. Now I don't feel I've like it's that rare. I don't know that it's a 1%, but it's, I don't know. I'm sure there's other people out there that are in the route that I took with it. Like why I did that. Yeah. And actually, one of the reasons that I picked that university was I went there. It was far enough away from Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I was uh, raised a couple mm -hmm. hours from there. And I was looking for a school that wasn't too big. But also when I entered, when I went there, like they had a good IT program, but I saw the ceramics facilities and it was just awesome. Yeah. But I was in that boat where I, I guess like I'm a cheap ass. So <laughs> like I'm very financially savvy. aware, savvy frugal, whatever. I'm not shy to say that, but um, I didn't want to do the risk of 
getting the degree in studio arts with my mindset of being that way financially. Like I probably could have made it work because I would have been pinching pennies where I needed to, but with the comfortability of doing something that was in demand, paid well, had a good chance of getting a a job out of college. That was the main driver. I don't know that that's a common thing for people that are 18 going into college, knowing what they want to do, but it's you a know, very I, mature. You're, you were a very mature 18 year old. I would say I went into school as an oboe performance major. So. Wow. Nice. There was a scholarship. It helped. So anyway. Yeah, that does help. Yeah. Yeah. So no, that totally makes sense. So, so would you say then that if the world was simple and you could do anything with ceramic, would you have gone with ceramics being the full-time thing? Or do you like having, because for some people, using your brain in all those different ways can be also really keeps things fresh. And Yeah, the work that I do now, it's still challenging. It's still, it's a brain challenge, but it's computer heavy. So it's, you still have to think about stuff that you're trying to accomplish. And there might be 10 different ways to accomplish it, but figuring out the most efficient way and talking with your peers of what do you think about this idea? Is this a good solution? And then just iterating and doing that over seven years of a career in that field, like you get better and better. You refine your skills. You still have to learn new things. And I think when I was going into college, I was looking at either computer information technology or something in business. And I think a lot of people that are somewhat business-minded do business because it's just so general and open. And I was like, oh, like I'm good financially. I think that would do well for me. Like I think I could do that because I liked math in high school and that kind of route. So you said, what would I do? Going into high school, going into college, I was like, yeah, like ceramics is what I want to do long-term. So I went with the safe route that I could make good money that I would like enough to do it at, um, a pace that I could ramp up the ceramics over time, which is the trajectory I'm on. And I've been on for, you know, five years of selling that I'm, I'm still in it and I'm still figuring it out and getting to a place where I'm comfortable making that jump when I want to. When you're making some big moves as an outsider, correct me if I'm wrong, but (laughs) you're, it seems to me at least that you've got a really big audience from an online presence. You're focusing heavy on, growing that Instagram following. And then also, didn't you just do, I'm assuming most of your business is based off Etsy because didn't you just do a class for people on how to be better at Etsy? That's the most general. I'm sure that I know the title was better than that. (laughs) It was called Introduction to Selling on Etsy, I think. But yeah, so... I like the bluntness of be better at Etsy. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically just intro to selling. People ask about how to sell online and there's not... Plus, it's such a specific thing. I'm sure there are people that sell on Etsy that are not in clay that could do this kind of thing, but I would just do it from a, what I've gone through. And I haven't had a ton of experience on Etsy. If it wasn't for 2020, I wouldn't have sold it as much as I did last year on Etsy. I've, when I do that class, I tell them like, hey, I've had like a thousand sales on Etsy and 500 of those were in 2020. So like, I wasn't killing the Etsy game until last year. And that was mostly because I had to shift with the pandemic and... And I wouldn't say that most of my sales are online. Actually, 2020, it was a pretty even split between online and in-person shows and other avenues of selling. But I still sold mostly in-person shows was the main seller for me. Like the most profitable income of the pottery business is selling in person. I guess one factor of that is 
I make basic pots in general for the most part. And I don't make artsy ceramics, like artsy pots that are just like amazing to look at. There is like a sect of my work that is that kind of designer heavy $65 mug kind of pot, but that's not the majority of my work. The majority of it's bread and butter production. Yep. Okay. Talk to me a little bit then about the in-person sales, because I do not have a lot of experience with in-person sales in Chicago, but what little I do, I noticed right away that the in-person sales in Illinois, at least, are pricey. They are a high upfront cost to get into. And so that there's that, it's interesting to me to hear you talk about how risk averse you are, because I'm like, oh, you're my people. I'm right there with you. There's a reason I got, I switched from oboe to graphic design, because that was supposed to be the employable art. That was supposed to be like (laughs) the safe people hire. This is much like you're talking about, like the nine to five, the office job with the benefits and everything. So do you have a circle, if you will, of like geography as far as how will how far you're willing to travel for them or yeah i'm not really traveling that far generally i would say so since 2015 right the first year i sold three shows and the only places i did it were i was still living in louisville so i did one in louisville and i did two in cincinnati and cincinnati is where i live so the majority of them are within two hours of my home the furthest that I've gone is Lexington, Kentucky, which is just south of me, an hour and a half, and then Louisville, Kentucky, which is two hours. So I'm not really on that like art show circuit necessarily that a lot of full-time people are on where they go to Georgia and Florida and all over the place. But I'm kind of figuring out what shows work well for me in my general radius that I'm comfortable going. And a lot of that is my vehicle is it's a nissan rogue so it's an suv but i can only fit so much stuff in there and if it's a two-day show and if i don't have enough room then we got to take two vehicles so my wife has to drive two and then i don't have enough stock for two two shows or two days and stuff like that so a lot of them are one day shows occasionally two day shows but they're within a couple hours because i don't want to go too far plus i can stay with my parents in louisville that cuts down to expenses and then but the like the priciness you mentioned the highest price I've spent for a booth is probably 350 bucks, but the majority of them are not like that. Chicago area, I don't know, but I'm guessing there's probably a lot of high-end jury art shows that are more than that, and they're probably three to three-day shows or something like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely, at least. So most of the ones that I'm doing are more, I wouldn't say like indie markets, but they're, they're a lot of like monthly markets that are local. They have the first weekend of every, the first Saturday of every month from May to October. And it's a consistency of the customer seeing you month after month. And regularity helped me a lot last year. I was selling at a lot of farmer's markets down the street that was 10 minutes from me. Farmer's market crowd is a lot of the same people coming back every week to get their produce. And I was selling well there. It's like a $10 or a $25 booth. So it's cheap. And then you get decent sales in years past when I was selling there, I might've sold a couple hundred bucks. Now if I go there and I'm going there this weekend for my first show, I might sell five to 600 bucks, which in my book is good for a Saturday morning when I'm not doing anything from nine to one anyways. I'd be sleeping until 11 o'clock on a Saturday anyway. So it's like, hey, if it's 10 minutes away, it doesn't take much effort to just go over there, do it, set it up. It's easy setup. So finding a mix of those cheap booths that are 25 to 30 bucks or whatever, or 10 to 30 bucks that are local, those aren't much risk involved because, hey, if it works out, you just lost the time that you went there. 
And, but I would say the majority of them that I'm doing like those monthly markets, those are between 60 and 90 bucks for the day. So it's not that bad. And there's plenty of those around here in Cincinnati yeah. area. Yeah. And then I've, I've looked at some in Columbus, Ohio. So there's a good number of show options in the area to go on. And that's great. It's kind of what I've been uh, focusing on. Well, and I've heard from other people who definitely have shows as a part of their business model that they learn so much just from being able to like in person talk to somebody or even maybe it's not even about all of the dialogue and conversation, but just watching somebody, what they gravitate towards in your booth and what you pick up and like how that can inform. Oh, okay. I don't know. Every time you sell out of mugs and you never sell a plate or whatever it might right. be to figure out, Hey, how can I make this sustainable? I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. For you. you could get so much more feedback from people in person in just a five minute interaction. Even if you're just watching them, even if you don't even say a word, you just see what they're gravitating toward, see what they're picking up, see what's grabbing their eye. You get way more than that. If you're selling online, you just put the photos up and if people like it or not, or if they comment on it, if they buy it or not, like you don't know what informed their decision of how they bought it or not. If you're at a show, you can get so much more nonverbal stuff, but you could also talk with them. You could talk about the process and with the basic pots, like I said, I make those sell the best in person because people can pick them up. They can see how heavy they are, if they fit their hand, if it's a mug, if it's a bowl or something like they can see it right there and imagine using it and see the scale of it. So in person is definitely my favorite way to sell just because for one, like I like the interaction with the customer, but also it's, it's the easiest way to There's no shipping. For people to get that. Yeah. The shipping helps too. <laughs> I would much rather pack up my car and go to and from a show and unload the vehicle and set up a booth than ship out. Yep. 60 boxes. <laughs> I did one of the in-person shows I did do a couple of years ago in Chicago. I It was like my first show ever. And I was, frankly, I had a lot of just stuff at home. Like I didn't, it's not like I had a style or a set of, oh, I'm going to make 50 of these mugs and have inventory or anything. It was just a hodgepodge of stuff. And so I had priced everything frankly, on the lower end. It was underpriced, right? It was like, As, get rid of it price. Well, that's exactly... So a guy came into the booth, like a whole family, who clearly knew something about ceramics because they were looking at it and they, they really liked it. And then he like turns it over to the bottom, looks at the price and goes, why is this so cheap? You're like, what's wrong with this? <laughs> exactly. I know what I'm looking at and this is not the price that I expected. This is way lower than I expected. There Precisely. must be something wrong. And I looked at him and I told him, Point blank, honest to God, I said, I live on the third floor of a walk-up apartment. Frankly, I don't want to carry these back upstairs. <laughs> and he was <laughs> Did like, he buy something? Sold. Yep. Handed me the cash nice. and was perfectly happy, but it was pretty funny. Well, Neat. That's an easy sale right there. It was brilliant. It was great. But yeah, maybe undercutting, unintentionally undercutting a little just because it was like, I don't have to ship it. I don't want to take it home. And all that's that. totally understandable. It was a conscientious low price i suppose right um, what was that then tradition uh not tradition transition for for you last year the transition of having a lot of these shows not be available and having to i'm assuming you were already selling online but maybe just weren't emphasizing it yeah i was selling online but i didn't have a lot of stock there consistently mm -hmm. so one thing i was doing was I had some cheaper items on hand. Like I make a lot of shot glasses because they sell well in person because they're the cheapest items that I have on my table. 
So one thing that I did to adapt was I found some air plants online and I bought a wholesale batch of air plants, maybe 30 or 40, paired them with the shot glasses, photographed them, and then did like a series of them available and people could pick their color and pick their air plant. So it was like a mini planter with an air plant that looked nice. It was the springtime and people could buy those. So those sold really well. And I also kept them on there in multiple quantities because they could live on the shop for a long period of time. It's not like taking a photo of one item and selling that one item because the photography part and all that computer work that I do in my nine to five, I want to try to minimize the time that I have to do that on my ceramic stuff as much as possible. So having pieces that I could photograph and list in a way that I could have multiple quantities available and just update the quantities as things sell, as well as when I have more stock, I could just up the quantity and relist it. So I was trying to do a lot of that. I've got, you know, some spoon rests in that batch. Now I've got some bowls, things like that, that I make in multiples that I can have multiple quantities. And that's helped minimize the amount of online, you know, restock work that I have to do. And just putting more time into, Hey, this month I want to photograph some, I think at a certain point in time, I was, I think it was in April, May last year, I had a period where I was putting new things up every week for three or four weeks. And it could have just been like 15 pieces. It wasn't anything massive and just doing it little by little. And you get some good feedback of what sells the quickest, what colors are doing well and what forms people are gravitating to more than others. As opposed to doing like the big, the big launch shop update in capitals kind of thing. Cause it's, it's, it's a gut check when you put a bunch of stuff up there and not, and not that many things sell. I had that recently with bowls. I went to this bowl restock and I put a whole bunch of different bowls up there and I must've photographed, I don't know, probably 15 different varieties of bowls, right? Different colors, different shapes or whatnot. And you put them up there and you get a trickle. It could have been the time of year. It could have been people weren't as interested in bowls as I thought they would be. It could have just been, maybe these aren't the best items to be selling online. It can also be the day of the week. I forget time of year. It can be the fact that it was a Monday instead of a Sunday or yeah. a or morning I just didn't instead of a night. didn't advertise it well enough. I thought it would just hit it out of the park just because I put it up there. Oh. Doesn't Etsy prefer like kind of the trickle, the ongoing updates? Don't you get some algorithm robot bonuses I don't with know. that? I heard I'm that. Not sure. That could be, it could be accurate. We'll have to report back. <laughs> the thing is, I do see some traction on pieces when I do mark them as freshly like uploaded or freshly listed. So if I have some pieces in the shop that have, like I mentioned, those shot glasses are like long lived, but they do auto renew, I think every three months or something like that. Like they, they reset them back to the top of the list. So I do see some traction when pieces are freshly listed. And I've noticed that a little bit. I think it was pieces that are just been on there for a long time. Right. Yeah. I think it was a, f- a friend of mine from my local studio that I used to be at before we were moving that he is just constantly, he'll do a batch quote unquote of draft listings where he'll do all the work to list them. But then he just has a reminder set on his phone or his calendar and once a day, or once every other day or whatever it is, he'll hit publish on one or two. And so that it's constantly, so it's constantly giving Etsy like, Hey, this is fresh and new. Exactly. And he, I don't know. He seems, that's a good idea. 
I guess that's similar with the whole doing it weekly helped to do small 10 to 15 pieces. Don't kill yourself to set goals for yourself to list 60 pieces. Exactly. Exactly. The thing I've always wondered, and I answer this, or we've got to talk to somebody else to also answer it, is the people that are doing these big bulk batches. I'm fascinated to know, are most of the people buying those when they're they're doing these big shop updates and launching them, but it is on Etsy and not their own website, are most of the people coming and buying those things already the audience that they've been nurturing on like Instagram and an email list and places like that? Because then I totally get still using Etsy just for the web development side of it of it's like a point of sale tool or the taxes or the shipping costs and all that because it auto populates but like to use it as the the search engine that it is you know you're not it would probably have to be a question for how much of their traffic is driven by etsy versus their own direct traffic which would be like social media so they could individually answer those questions but i would guess that it would probably be the majority of their customers that are already their customers are the ones on there because if they're selling out in five minutes how much time do you think etsy actually has to surface these posts while people are in that five minute window of just searching on etsy by happenstance i think it's all direct traffic coming from their social or their newsletter or whatever yep that's well, my suspicion. Is that how it was? Have you, cause you're, you're, I feel like you are somewhere on that spectrum of Instagram famous. Like you've got enough followers where the number starts to truncate in your bio. So do you feel as these in-person shows slowed down last year with the pandemic, was that the case for you in terms of like, you've nurtured this audience for yourself and that's how the online sales have happened? Yeah, I think the, Number of followers definitely just widens the number of audience members that know your work and see your work. But I wouldn't say that the number directly correlates with if you have this number of followers, you will sell 75% of your stock when you list it. It's also just a marketing thing of figuring out the right, knowing the right research so that you can put the pieces that are in demand in front of them when people want to buy them. Like I mentioned with the bulls. If I don't have the right pieces at the right time, then it's not going to have as much return as I expect. And also understanding your audience. Like, what are people following you for? Are they following you because they'd like your pots to buy them? Or do they follow you because I give out a lot of tips about my process and it's a lot of peers that are newer in ceramics that want to know how I glaze my stuff and how I do the business side of it or pieces of my process of how I throw something because they don't know how to throw as well or they're learning. So I would say that's probably the majority of my audience as well as I throw hashtags in all of my posts that are local hashtags like Kentucky Bay, Kentucky Proud and things like that are attracting customers that are in my sphere that want to support small business that are local to me. And maybe they have more of a chance of seeing me at a show. If I advertise for a show, it's going to cater to that audience of my following. Yeah. Somebody already like shows that do have an online presence where they're following the show and now they're seeing your work because of that. Yeah. Or they're just searching for Kentucky art because, or Kentucky artists because they bought something local and they want to see what other Kentucky artists are out there near them. That's cool. That's cool. Is there much, do you feel like there's much ongoing connection between the people that you're meeting at shows and then how you, are you able to maintain those relationships 
or move them from in person into like a a digital space to keep in touch with them and keep once they buy a piece in a show then they're buying something from your website or I don't know I'm yeah just- I do continually give them info with my my business info and it's got my Etsy shop on there my website and thanking yep. them for buying handmade so all that does go in there they could follow me Instagram's on there so they know how to follow me there I do have the you know, like a sign on my table that says follow me and it's got the Instagram handle the Facebook handle uh, it's hard to know the numbers though of how many people are actively going and finding me on my Instagram account and following me after a show. Yeah. But There's I am exactly seeing more local orders. No. And the thing is when you have a number, you don't look at the the new followers as much. It's <laughs> I don't I can't go into the people that follow me and look at every single profile. And see where they're at. Why see, not, you know, Ryan? Why? <laughs> you have too because many I'm people? Already, <laughs> because I'm already spending two and a half hours on Instagram a day. How much time would that take if I look at every I just, follower? I love that that was like the most humble brag of when you're so popular. You I was trying really. to preface that, but I didn't know how to preface it. But like, I do spend a lot of time on Instagram every day anyway. Yeah. So I'm Okay, like, so wait a second. Real talk, as opposed to wheel talk. Real talk. <laughs> you're working nine to five. Every single day. You just said you spend two and a half hours on Instagram every single day. So that we're now at 10 and a half hours. You also are happily married. Assuming that I'm only picking up my phone when I'm off at work hours. Touche. Touche. (laughs) We will not promote this podcast episode to your superiors. Who doesn't get distracted in their nine to five anyways, unless you're doing something that is taking up your time entirely cardio surgery or yeah i mean i work on a computer from home it's very hard not to pick up my phone it's a reality so here's the question then and i'm saying this because i have this for my phone do you have the time limit you know that you're on instagram two and a half hours a day because your phone gives you the little like you've got five minutes left yeah i set the timer at two hours yeah. And I said two and a half. It's probably two hours and 10 minutes. But No, because you get that, give me 15 more minutes, and then it comes yeah. up again, and you do it again. Yep. Yeah, yep. I don't have to, like, remind me multiple times. I just have the one time, let me know when it's been two hours, and then I'm like, okay, like, I need to put my phone down. Stop, stop. Okay. Okay, that makes me feel slightly better just for your personal well-being, because I'm counting the hours in the day going... Okay, you also mentioned a wife. There's only, you mentioned being in the studio until midnight. Like, how? (laughs) And look, I'm well acquainted with the 12-hour day, but. Funny thing is, most of those hours that are on my Instagram account are not while I'm in the studio. Because, funny enough, I am very heads down when I'm in the studio, which probably makes sense, I guess. I do the little wrap-ups at the end of my studio session and show people what I worked on. But I'm trying not to reply to people on messages and stuff like that while I'm in the studio. Just because for one, your hands are dirty, but also I want to focus on what I'm trying to get done. How are you balancing all of these things in reality? And also is your studio at home? Is it offsite? It's at home. Okay. Yeah. So it's in the basement. I can go down there. I can go down there and check on a kiln in the morning when I get up and get my tea. If a kiln fired the night before, and I'm just checking to see what the temp's at, or I'm I left pots uncovered from the night before. Like I said, I get done at midnight or something like that, and then I'm just ready to check on them in the morning, get some air to them, let them dry out, throw some plastic over them the next morning, and then they're ready to go for that evening. Yeah. Before COVID, were you having to go into an office, or have you always been remote working? No, 
I've been working remote for five years. Cool. So the COVID really didn't do anything about remote working for me. Well, I was just thinking as far as balancing both worlds and having just a healthy personal life, it makes more sense to me when you can kind of be a bit more of control in terms of maybe the two of you can sit down and have lunch together, even though it's work yeah. out, you know, having all of that commuting time, whether it be to an office, to a studio, all that stuff does free up a that lot. It definitely of cuts time. down and it just eliminates variables that could throw your day off. Do I need to get gas today? Is somebody being an asshole when I'm driving? Does that change my mood? When all I got to do is walk downstairs and not think about it, that that just eliminates a lot of variables of things that could just come up or things that I need to do or errands that need to be done. Well, and actually one thing this brings up that I haven't thought about before, but makes complete sense, you know, trying to build a business to gradually make this full time as a ceramicist, like there's so much timing with ceramics when it comes to how fast or how slow are the pots drying. I mean, unless you have like have a drying room where it's perfectly controlled this was what was so hard when we were at the community studio was like, especially with COVID, there was only certain times you could go in to keep the number of people in the studio low. But even before that, depending on what class you had or what level of, we didn't call it membership, but for lack of a better word, membership you had, you're trying to figure out like, well, I threw yesterday, do I, you go, there'd be times I'd go into the studio and the pots weren't dry enough to then trim. So then you're like, okay, I just came right. here. Cause you have to wrap them. Like, you don't know what the airflow is going to be. Like, they could turn on a heater that day and crank it up because it's super cold and it just kills your pots. And you're like, that's a waste. I got to wrap everything from now on and I can't really do much about it. Yep, exactly. And then it's like, okay, well, like, you know, my commute to the studio wasn't all that far whatsoever, but it was like, okay, well, if you took 20 minutes or a half hour or whatever it is to get to the studio in the first place, and then you realize the stuff you were going to do isn't ready. Well, so what do you do now? Yeah. I can definitely plan out my schedule a lot better being in my home because for one, I control the heat and cooling. (laughs) I can shut vents if I want in the studio. Like if I know that the heat's going to be on because it's really cold that night, I can shut the vents over there or not put pots by that vent because I know that it's the air is going to move in that area. And I've definitely done that. Or if I fire a kiln, make sure that I cover things up because it's going to dry out the whole room. It's going to heat up and use damp boxes. Damp boxes has been a big thing. I think anybody should be using a damp box, honestly. If you're throwing like production, like damp boxes are a great way to control the moisture for sure. Like I've had 30 mugs in a damp box for probably three weeks and I haven't touched them and it's awesome. Uh, We need to, we're going to talk more about this right now because I feel like that's going to change people's (laughs) lives. Did you make your own or are there ones that you bought? I did. I don't know that you can even buy them. I'm sure people probably just, that might be a business for somebody. If if you just want to make plaster slabs and put them in Rubbermaid tubs and just sell them for, you buy the tub for five or six bucks, make the plaster and sell the whole thing for 15 bucks. Like you could probably make a good business And then cut Ryan 5% because we literally just publicized this genius idea. (laughs) (laughs) Because people don't know how to mix plaster. And if people do, then it's like, it's super easy. Yeah. So, okay. So tell, for people that don't know what we're talking about, describe what we're talking about here. Yeah. So just, it's just a Rubbermaid tub. So think of a storage tub that you would put your Christmas decorations in. It could be a deep one that's 18 inches deep, or it could be a shallow one that's like under the bed kind of size that's eight inches deep. And you mix up plaster, put it in the bottom let it contour to the shape of the inside of the 
bin, smooth it out, let it dry, do all that good stuff. And then I just put my pots in it and have a lid for it. I don't personally put any water in there. Some people talk about doing that. Do you dump water in there so it's absorbed in the plaster? I've never done that. But over time, it does tend to condensate inside of the box. And then the moisture drops down into the plaster because it's it's plastic. So the, the moisture is not going to come out unless you wipe it off the inside. So the moisture builds up in there. And it's just a controlled environment that the moisture level stays consistent. If you take pots that are leather hard, put them in there they're going to retain that moisture level. It's going to freeze time for that pot. And it does dry out a little bit the more you take the lid off and put the lid on and all that stuff. But just like anything else, if you take plastic off your pots, it's going to dry. So it's the same thing as plastic, but it's a smaller, like tighter area. You can even do that for wedge clay too, right? Like spend a couple hours one day just weighing out. Yep. I use cat litter buckets for that, actually. So we have cats and I have no shortage. No less than like 20 cat litter buckets in my studio right now that I use for various things. We are recording this on Earth Day, so this is a savvy way to stay there you conscious. Go. Re- reuse. I need to be sponsored by Tidy Cats or something <laughs> because I got those yellow buckets everywhere. So I use, the, I use those Tidy Cat buckets. I have clay prepped. And I have them in those five gallon buckets and they've got the, the good thing about the tidy cat ones, they have the flip lids, but it's not like a full lid that's attached. It's like a, th- a third of it is still attached at all times and you just flip the lid open so you can just grab the clay balls. So that's what I use. That's what you're talking about like, as a damp box. It's just a controlled plastic tub environment that keeps your clay from drying out. And if you don't know the plaster thing, if you don't want to worry about the plaster, what I did before I even made the damp boxes, before I had plaster, before I knew how to mix up plaster very well, I just had a table surface that was clear. And instead of draping plastic over it, I would put one of those plastic tubs and flip it upside down and just put it on top. And that made a damp box in and of itself. It's just thicker plastic and it doesn't touch your pieces, which is what I cared about most. I don't like the plastic because if you freshly throw it, you can't put plastic on freshly thrown pieces. It's going to stick to it and deform it and all that stuff. I can't tell you how many rims I've messed up because I like finished a throwing session, had to get out of the studio on time and was like cleaning up all my stuff. And then you toss a piece of plastic over the top and you're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, especially if you're a perfectionist. It's, uh, no, scrap it. I'm slowly letting go of that title bit by bit. You mentioned that kind of like shot glasses are a go-to thing. I was going to ask you about like, is there something that you feel like for for your ceramics business that kind of is the repeat coming back to you're always making it staple item? Is there anything else besides that that you feel like is your go-to? Shot glasses off the hump, definitely. Like you mentioned, I'm consistent. I probably make 50 of those a month and just keep making them and keep it stocked. I like to keep my Bisquare stocked up, so... Consistently making things that are always going to sell is a stress reliever to make sure I don't run out. Spoon rests, for sure. Those are a good attainable item. They were selling for 12 bucks before, but I think I just marked them up to 15 because I started selling more online. And that audience is going to take some of that stock away. So I need to change the price a little bit so that when I go to shows, I have enough. And uh, spoon rests, for sure. And then mugs are bread and butter things, too, always. So... I make a variety of mugs. The prices range from 26 bucks to 60 bucks or 65 bucks, depending on what type of mug it is. And the, the higher end ones are those carved mugs, the Scrafito black and white or the underglaze and white mugs. Yep. 
So yep, that totally makes sense. Is there something that you feel like, since we were talking about how over the course of time, the goal is to kind of, you know, flip this on its head to have more ceramics and less development. Is there something that you feel like, since you and I are, are similar in our risk aversion, is there something that you feel like markers that you're kind of like, once I hit XYZ, I'm going yeah. to be more comfortable with more time in this and less time in other work or... Is there anything that you kind of find in your it, head? It, it mostly comes down to the relationship with my wife and I of figuring out how comfortable we are because my full-time job is the primary income that we have. She's, she works full-time as a flight attendant, but that doesn't pay nearly as close to what my salary is. So I'm trying to narrow that gap between my salary and my ceramics. And just thinking of it out of the box, like web development and ceramics, like they're not close, but you've got to <laughs> narrow that gap and figure out a way to either live on less income or get to a place where either you like don't have any debt and you can afford to make those changes and you can rack up cash flow because you don't have debt. That's one thing that we've done, like paying off your car and not having student loan debt that we've paid off and like using that good salary to pay off those things that are not going to keep getting us as well as not paying rent for a studio. Like I don't have to continually pay stuff like that. And I'm trying to remember what the question was. It was just like, how do you narrow the gap and make it comfortable? Because for some people, I feel like there's some people who have a risk tolerance that boggles my mind who are just like, I wanted to do this. So I did it. And I figured out how to make it work while I did it. And I'm like, that's cool. But I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like chasing the money is is tough. I don't want to be chasing monthly like sales. I'm not in a good I can't make a good educated decision about like where I want to go with it if I'm just saying I need to find a way to make a thousand dollars. Let's do it. It's like I can and I can fail in this state right now, like selling for five years. I can fail in this five years. It doesn't affect my bills or anything. It's totally based on my own challenges, what I want to put into it, you know, what I want to try. Because at the end of the day, for me, it's really the time that's lost. It's not the money. It's not not paying bills or not being able to go out to eat or go get go to the bar or something if I wanted to this month because I got to you know, pinch pennies, but it gives me more options to fail and figure out the ways that I want to make money. And that could be trying out teaching and seeing how I like teaching. Is that worth the time and something that I want to do that could scale? Or is it worth trying the whole like intro to selling on Etsy? Is that a selling avenue that I can go down to? I'm getting more comfortable like teaching people things. And I feel like I have somewhat a like unique skill set in that, that I can teach it and I'm comfortable teaching it versus being another ceramics teacher that teaches people how to throw on the wheel. I don't feel like that's in my ballpark enough that I could enjoy it enough and make it financially worth it just based on what I'm comfortable doing, figuring out other ways to make income and narrow that gap over time. And like the podcast is one of those. Doing the podcast, I'm getting a lot of iterations of talking about these topics, like understanding where I stand on a certain topic or what do I actually think about the quality of my work 
of am I doing the testing to make sure that it's quality enough to give to people? Like, am I selling things that should be considered seconds or not even sellable at all? And understanding more of what goes into the process that is just going to improve my quality for customers as well as help my business for the long term. Because if you're having troubles like that, you you have that come up when you need to pay the bills and shit happens in your kill and you don't know what's going on. That can really affect you. Yes. Um, yeah. And throw you off. And knowing how to change elements in my kiln, like I I know how to do that because I went through that in the times that it, it's not super pressing. Mm-hmm. Well, and then not having to hire someone to come fix the kiln then you're waiting on their time schedule to come and that right. cost or whatever. Yeah. I, well, and I think the huge thing is that I keep trying to remind myself because I remember 11 years ago starting my photography business and people have heard me say this and they're probably rolling their eyes as if I'm like some grandmother saying when I was your age, but like (laughs) there was, there was no one in particular, but I put this pressure on myself that there was this feeling of like, if you're not full time, you're not legit. And that's bull crap. Like that is complete nonsense whatsoever. And so I I rushed to be able to quit the other jobs that I had that provided me income. Now, granted, part of that was because I was getting like five hours of sleep every night. So like that was just quality of life. (laughs) But yeah, because I didn't have a a full time kind of desk job. I had, you know, I was making coffee and nannying and doing all this kind of stuff. So just that that rush to do it, then you add the pressure of you have to make this work and you have to be able all to your eggs in one basket. You gotta, you gotta do it. <laughs> you have to take photos that people want to hire you for in order to pay the bills, not like iterate and experiment and test out new things. I mean, when I saw you starting to do Scrafito, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was like, Oh, I've never seen Ryan do that before. Like that's new. Yep. It was totally new and I didn't do it or else I wasn't doing it until I was teaching. I was teaching. It was in that atmosphere. I could demo things. I could try things out. Honestly, I probably started doing it because they had free underglazes there. And I, I'm not going to go out and just buy something that I've never experimented with before and just try it out necessarily. Like I would rather try it in an atmosphere that gets me out of my bubble. So teaching was like that, where I'm not focusing my time while I'm teaching, making production because that time is lost if I focus on something that is not proven to sell. That's how I think about it when I'm in my studio. Yeah, absolutely. And if that was full time, there'd be so much pressure of you better be able to sell everything that you just made because then your time is always valuable. But if this was the full time thing, like your making time is, is the value. I mean, that's, you know, right. where it all comes from. So, uh, I didn't realize it's already been over an hour and I was like, oh crap, sorry, Ryan. <laughs> it's fine. We can go as long as you want, honestly. It's whatever. Well, you know, but also I'm sure there's dinner and time for time for all the things. What what awaits you in the <laughs> studio tonight? Studio. So I just did a restock this week and I was packing up pots. So I'm thinking of what I need to get down there and do. I've got my first sale on Saturday. So I'm probably going to finish packing up some bins of work that I need to take on Saturday. That's what's awaiting me, I would say, and making sure I price everything. I actually made a list for myself at the beginning of the week of the things I want to get done before that show. And it, it's an easy one. It's a farmer's market. So it's it's not anything complicated, but it'll be fun. I'll, I'll probably be planting some. I've got some a good amount of succulents and stuff. I don't know if you've seen our porch. We have a lot of different succulents and we do the propagation and all that. So I'm going to 
put together some planters that have succulents in them, like an assortment and see how those sell at the farmer's market this weekend. And that's probably what I'm going to be doing. So it'll be fun. And nice. yeah, I would say the succulents are like one of my hobbies, I guess. I don't have many hobbies because clay is a lot of my time after hours, but I do enjoy going out of the porch and watering my succulents and seeing the like propagations growing and like getting to a state where I'm able to say, Hey, just do people local like want some of these because I have them and you can take them if you want, because I don't have enough pots and enough space for all these. You start using the word propagation. I feel like your next level plant parent, you're like that takes you, that (laughs) ratches it up a notch. (laughs) Yeah. Cause you've actually kept them all alive so much so that you can make more of them. So it's a good sign. (laughs) Right. Well, is there anything that over these last five years, as you've been experimenting, as you've been digging in, just kind of to leave everybody with, is there anything that you wish you would have either known before or has surprised you, whatever it is, if you could tell somebody who's just getting started? Yeah. So the one note that I wrote about this was managing your expectations. So... I mentioned a little bit earlier about the restocks, assuming that something's going to happen or setting these high hopes, I would rather focus on doing those smaller restocks and getting a gauge of what people's response are versus doing this big, huge restock, putting it on there and hearing crickets and not knowing why it's not selling. And that for me, that's getting to like your expectations of what you think is going to happen. And you're just like, Eh, it didn't happen. And it just gets you bummed out. And it feels like all that time you spent doing all that work was wasted because it's just sitting up there. But there's some of that. And then if it's related to shows, you got to manage what you expect to sell. I'm getting better over time because the more I do shows, the more I can kind of look at a show, look at the other vendors that are going to be there. If I've been there before, I know what to expect from the customers. I know what pieces sell well. I would say go into it with an open mind so that you don't feel like it's a big roller coaster throughout the day of, oh, somebody said they were going to buy something. They didn't come back and get down in the dumps. Try to treat it as like every customer is potentially going to be a sale and treat them as such so that it's not like letting you get you down because things aren't selling or something like that. So I would say that's the good, like succinct summary, I guess, that as you're going, like setting those high expectations can be tough, but, you know, be more reasonable with it. It sounds like resilience also. Yeah, you got to be like determined to to push through it. And like and getting in the studio, like I said, being in there 6 to 12, I have pretty good discipline to be in there consistently. Just like the Instagram thing. Manage your expectations of how quickly you expect to grow. If you're asking people that are like, whatever, me, 30,000 followers, how do you gain more followers? I'm basically like, hey, I've been doing this since for five years and I post five days a week post for five days a week for three to five years. See what happens. See, figure out what happens. Like you're a photographer, better pictures, you improve your craft, you improve what you're posting and figuring out what people resonate with, share some of your process. I try not to hold too much to my chest to keep it hidden or secret from people. Like I'm pretty open with it. And you get a lot of people that can appreciate the authenticity and like the willingness to help others. Giving more than you ask for, I think, is not a bad thing. And realize that you're doing it for the long term. Yes. Oh, that's perfect right there. Remembering that you're doing this for the long term. That's 
Yeah. Sit with that, everybody. <laughs> it's a lot of at bats. Think of it like I like baseball. Hey, all you got to do is succeed three out of ten times, and you're considered like one of the best. Right, like a good batting <laughs> average. Like when you actually look at what that ratio and percentage yeah, like is, three hundred. Which is not. We're not talking three hundred percent here, people. Three hundred batting average is not a high number. It's thirty percent <laughs> success rate is what that means. Exactly. Exactly. So, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. I don't know if there's people on Instagram that don't know where to find you, but for people who need to find you on the internet or where else, where should they go? <laughs> it's at RD Ceramics, R's and Ryan, D's and Durbin Ceramics. And you can also look at my Etsy shop, RD Ceramics. And then my website's RyanDurbanCeramics.com. Perfect. Thanks so much, Ryan. We'll wrap up with that. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. That wraps up episode 117 of the Maker's Playbook. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, I will be on a little hiatus for the next two weeks as we prepare for a very special series completely devoted to discussing photography specifically for ceramicists and other makers. It is a month-long education extravaganza, and you are not going to want to miss it. Be sure to click the link in the show notes to download my at-home photography cheat sheet and be added to our list in order to snag all of the photography education goodies I'm lining up right now. If you have other maker friends you think would love this podcast and benefit from all those photography tips, please be sure to share this episode with them. If you tell them about us on Instagram, I would love it if you tag me at the Maker's Playbook and Ryan at RD Ceramics so we can say thanks. Until next time, go get back to making your dreams a reality. Together, We've got this.